Acts chapter 20. We looked at the first six verses last week, and with Paul traveling, and I'll briefly go over that in just a second, remind you of his travels, and when we we come here to verse 7, he's back in a town called Troas, and I'll cover how he got here in just a minute. But look what happens once he's back in Troas. Um, he's going to be there about a week. He says that upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, Ready to, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he had therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even until break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. And we went before, uh, when we went before to ship and sailed to um, Assos, there intending to take in Paul, for he had appointed... Uh, minding himself to go afoot. And when, we, and when he met with us in Assos, he took him and came to uh, Mytilene, and we sailed thence and came the next day over against uh, Chios, and the next day we arrived at Samos, tarried at Trogilium, and the next day came to Miletus. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted if it were possible for him to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, certainly do love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I ask your blessing now upon this time. Lord, I pray for your help. You would guide what I say and how I say it. I pray for mercy and grace. And Lord, may your spirit work and have free course. May you teach us your word. May you preach. May you do the, the encouraging, the, the reproving, the rebuking. Use this to strengthen us and to draw us closer to you. Lord, I certainly pray that all of us would leave here with a greater love and desire for you. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, I pray that you would show them that need of what salvation is all about and the true reason why the Lord Jesus Christ was on this earth. Lord, I pray that you be glorified. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, when we began chapter 20 last week, we saw Paul was departing Ephesus. We looked at this just amazing man of God. He was an incredible apostle. And when it comes to the New Testament, the apostle Paul certainly is my hero in all that he went through. Uh, he had this amazing determination about him, this grit. He had such concern and such love for the churches. He had a brutal traveling schedule. We talked last week at his thought, not counting his travels by sea, but just by foot, that he traveled on foot 10,000 miles. Incredible. He worked with passion. We saw last week, though, we focused on, even though the fact that he was so strong in his faith, had such determination and such passion, we also saw that he was very human. 
And that during that section of traveling in those first six verses of chapter 20, that when he got into Troas the first time, he even battled with depression. Even despairing of life, it teaches us in 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote that right after he left Troas, if you remember, in, in Philippi. We even looked at a portion in Scripture that he might have went to, from Psalm 119, verse 81 through 88, and how that psalmist at that time, with all the trials he was facing, was struggling. This week, we're going to continue to look at this amazing man. We left off last time, he was coming back to Troas. Remember what happened? He was in Ephesus. It, of all his missionary journeys, this, this is his third missionary journey he's on. During all of the previous two, Ephesus was the longest stay he had. I mean, he's going on three years. The church became, was very strong, was grounded. And so Paul departs Ephesus and he heads up the coast by foot to Troas. He gets to Troas and that's where he was struggling because he was supposed to meet Titus. Titus was supposed to meet him here. Titus didn't show up. Paul was worried. Remember why he was worried. He had sent a letter when he was in Ephesus to 1 Corinthians. That's that epistle you have in your Bible right now. And that was a strong letter. The church at Corinth was becoming a mess. They were allowing just open sin in the church and not dealing with it. They had problems with communion. They had division among themselves. And Paul sent this stern letter and he is concerned at how the letter was received. So Titus doesn't show up, and Paul ends up leaving Troas, leaving the others there. He goes by himself, he heads over to Philippi, into Macedonia. He's going to retrace his steps of his second missionary journey. What he's doing is, he is also collecting funds for what's going on in Jerusalem because of all the persecution and the suffering that's taking place there, and he wants to be a help to him. Paul gets to Philippi, and Titus shows up, and he is just rejoicing. He hears that things are going better in Corinth at that time, and it's during that time that he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians. After spending some time in Philippi, he travels down. He goes to Thessalonica, Berea, down through Athens, and right into Corinth. Um, and once he gets to Corinth, he's going to stay for a bit of time. It's during this time that he's going to write the book, uh, the, the letter to the Romans. He finds that there's a businesswoman that's going to be traveling to Rome. And Paul writes just that master doctrinal piece that we are going through on Wednesday nights at that, during that time. He wanted to get on a ship right there and head back to Jerusalem. But he found out that the Jews that were present there had a plot to kill him once he got on that boat. So he changed course up, and he walks back up, going back through his previous course, back to Berea, Thessalonica, into uh, Philippi, and he celebrated uh, the Passover when he got into, uh, into Philippi there in Macedonia, and then he heads back over to Troas once again. And this is where we pick up our story uh, of what's taking place here in our text, I should say. Paul returns to Troas. And he's going to be there for a few days. And on the Lord's Day, the church meets and Paul preaches. By the way, the very next day, Paul is departing once again. Again, he wants to get to Jerusalem now. He wanted to be for the Passover, but because of the plot to kill him, it didn't work. So now he's determined to try and get there by Pentecost, which would be a 50-day delay. So, the next day he's leaving, but the, the service begins that evening on the Lord's Day, and he preaches... Uh, um, all night. He preaches until midnight, and they're in this upper room. Now, let's talk about that just for a second. 
many of the homes here, and I got a much greater perspective of that when the church sent me and Marianne to Israel going back last January of how large these rooms could actually be and how, why they were used for meetings and occasions like this. And so they would usually look for a member who had a large enough house with a large enough upper room to meet in for the church to assemble. If there wasn't one of the members, it was, it was fairly easy really to rent one of those out and have an upper room that they would meet in. And that's what's taking place here. Um, <clears throat> and so Paul meets there. It is, it is on an evening, and the text tells us that there are many lights. There in verse 8, obviously it's dark out, it's going on midnight. This would be a combination of torches, of candles, lighting the room. There's probably at least 50 to 60 people that are present for this meeting. Remember that when Paul came through in his second missionary journey, there was no really open door for Troas. That's where the Macedonian call came. He really didn't preach there. But when he came back through, when he left Ephesus, uh, uh, you know, uh, just months prior to this, the Lord did open the door. He did begin in preaching. He's establishing a church there. <clears throat> and so you probably have around 50 to 60 people that are meeting. Now, just picture this. Paul is preaching for hours. It's going to be getting very warm with all the people who are present, besides all the smoke and fumes from the torches and the candles. It's late, and you have a young man who decides to open up one of the windows, and they wouldn't have glass then, of course. It would be wood and lattice. You'd open those up. It would be an open area, and he goes and sits in the windowsill. Eutychus. He heads to the window, and you can just imagine it. It's very late. It's midnight. There's times we've all been there like this young man. I mean, I give this guy credit. It's, it's, I mean, the service has been going on for hours, and no doubt he wants to hear it, but you got the fumes, the smoke, the heat, it's late. I mean, most of us, we get a little antsy if the service goes beyond 40 minutes. So he's sitting in this window, and you can just see him starting to doze. Some of you think like I, I, that I don't recognize that. It's like you're agreeing with me. No, I know you're dozing off. I know that's what's happening, all right? No doubt this guy's trying to hold his eyes off. I remember one time we were so busy on a, on a youth trip at the time when I was a teenager. And actually, where's Holly? It was actually at Word of Life. And Dr. Whitcomb was preaching that morning. I wanted to be there for that, for that class on Genesis and we were up just about all night. We're probably talking less than an hour of sleep. And I, I couldn't wait for his class. But oh my goodness, was I tired. I've been up. I was probably going on two days with about three hours mixed in those couple of days sleep. And I remember just trying to stay awake um, during that lecture. But you can just see him starting to nod, taking place, trying to hold his eyes open. But the heat, the smoke, the late hour. And this guy finally just completely dozes off. And he falls out of the window. Three stories. It's going to be a really good drop. This is going to be more than a 20-foot drop that's going to hit him. And maybe as close as 30. He falls out of the window. And remember who's, who's recording this right now and who is also present. Because Luke met up again with Paul at Philippi. And now he's traveling with him again. Luke, by profession, is a doctor. And so Luke tells us the phrase, taking up dead, means he's dead. That's what it means. And so he falls out of the window. You can just imagine he, he I mean, uh, other injuries would have taken place from broken bones and, and things like that. And, but he falls out of the window dead. 
The people begin to mourn, realizing what has happened. And Paul then, hearing the ruckus, what has taken place, he stops, he stops preaching. He runs down, and the wording used there, he's embracing this young man. It means basically he laid on top of him. One commentator said I had to laugh. He said he thinks Paul was doing CPR. I got news for you. If I fall out of a window and I wake up and you're laying on top of me doing CPR, one of us is dying. I think more of what's taking place here is what we see in 1 Kings chapter 17, 2 Kings chapter 4 with Elijah and Elisha. The same principle is happening here. And during this time, his life is restored. He has taken up alive. People are rejoicing. And by the way, let me give you something Spurgeon said I came across as I was studying this week. In case you think falling asleep during our service is okay. Spurgeon told his congregation this when he was preaching on this message. He said, remember this. If, if, if you go to sleep during the sermon and die, there's no apostles here to restore you to life. So Eutychus is raised up. He'd have been a young man, probably around 14. There's two different words used, actually, here in the text for young man. And they, they signify two different ages. But when you dive into the one word, it also means that he was a servant. So he was probably around 14 years of age and served as a servant, but he got saved and was part of the church. So anyhow, they, they, they come back upstairs after all this takes place. Um, they break bread. Paul begins preaching and teaching again. And, and this also has the idea of dialogue, questions and answers. And that takes place all the way until the morning. It goes all night long, this meeting. The next, the next morning, Paul goes to leave. And what's interesting is this. He sends his disciples on a boat out of Troas. And they're going to travel 30 miles to Assos, except for Paul. Paul does not get on that boat. Paul will walk. Walking was a little bit less, but it still took much longer. It was about 20 to 25 miles by foot, the journey. But he would walk this journey alone. He put all those with him, all those companions with him. He told all of them to get on the boat. He said, I'm going alone. I'm going to go by foot by myself. From there, once Paul meets up with them in, in Assos, then he does get on a boat with them, and they travel to Mytilene, a chief city of this little island that is right there. It's about all these little locations. They're almost exactly somewhere around 30 miles in distance. That's how they travel today. You'd have the morning winds that would blow. You'd get on the boat. You would travel about 30 miles by boat till that afternoon. Then the boat would stop at a shore. It would wait till the next morning or a day or two, depending on which location you were going to. It was, it was a really uh, impressive system to get around by boats. And so they would travel 30 miles. You'd get on another boat, go to the next port city, which would be about 30 miles based on, based on the wind and how you could travel. And so that's what we're seeing taking place going from this city to city. Uh, once they leave Assos, they go to uh, Chios, an island off of the coast of Asia as well. And, and this, by the way, was an interesting place. This is the birthplace of the Greek poet Homer. And then they went to Samos. Uh, uh, that's near Ephesus. One of the most famous mathematicians was born there. And then from there they go to uh, Trogilium and from there to Miletus. Again, each about 30 miles apart. And that was the normal traveling. Now, Paul could have taken a ship that did not go to Miletus, but to Ephesus. 
but the problem is he, he wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And it's going to take longer if he, goes, if he does go to the, the route to Ephesus. So he goes to Miletus. He has a couple of day break once he's there. And while he's there... Um, he sends for, we didn't read that, but that's verse 17. He sends for the elders of Ephesus to come and meet him there. He's going to teach and preach some more. He's going to exhort them. He even uses his time wisely on that brief stopover. So, this evening, as we look at this incredible apostle, there's some more things I want to point out from this text to try and help us in our service before God. There's two truths that I want to bring out. Two truths, I'll give them to you right now, and then we're going to look at them. Two things I learned as I study this text. One, the importance of forsaking not the assembly of ourselves. Forsake not the assembly time. And number two, forsake not alone time. So let's look at these two here this morning. Forsake not the assembly time. In other words, when the church is meeting, as you notice this, each place Paul stops, he held the church meeting. He knew the importance of it. He knew the importance. Look over with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Look over in Hebrews chapter 10 with me. Look at verse number 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This verse is certainly being abandoned. The devil knows the power of why, the importance of why we need to assemble together, the importance of the teaching, the preaching, the fellowship, and all that goes with it. It's being attacked. More and more churches are dropping Sunday evening services thinking that they don't need it. We no longer need this amount of assembly. I actually have a neighbor who has been faithful to his church. Now they don't have to attend, he let me know. If now they just continue with it since COVID online. So they can just assemble. Listen, no, we need to assemble together. You need to be present for the church services. And Paul recognized the importance of the, of the church gathering. And just think about this. When he gets to Miletus, he has, he has just a couple of day window before he departs back to Palestine and make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Does the guy rest? He doesn't. He gets to Miletus says, how much time do I have? They could get here. He sends word, get the elders down here now. I'm going to preach to him again. He already left. He already said goodbye to him once. But he gets him back down there. And he's going to teach and preach. He's going to address the leadership. He's going to encourage them. We'll get into that next week. Well, actually, in a couple of weeks. I mean, it's sad today what we've seen taking place. There seems to no longer be a hunger and thirst for the preaching of the word of God. By the way, when Paul met with the church, it's true throughout the... It's, True throughout centuries. But we're looking at the first century in the Bible, in the New Testament, the pattern that is given for us. There was never an emphasis on music. Or some smooth worship experience to give the people. To allow emotions and feelings take over. What was emphasized everywhere he went, as we're going through the book of Acts, is the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. That's what will change your life. You're right. If I provide a concert for you, when you come in here, you're going to feel good during that concert, during, during when that music is moving, you're going to feel good. But you will have nothing to help your life. 
You have no truth from the Creator Himself of how to apply it to use it, to help your marriage, to help you at work, to, to provide some wisdom for your life. Even, even at times churches are meeting, they're sacrificing what is most important for the sake of entertainment. When we come to meet, there's certain things I, I think you need to prepare yourself for when you come to a church service. Number one and most important is prepare for the preaching. It's the primary purpose of us meeting. It is what Paul always emphasized. It was what the Lord Jesus Christ always emphasized. Listen, something is wrong in your Christian life if you don't have a hunger to know the Word of God, to learn more of God. Either something has really died off in your Christian life, or you have never genuinely been converted. This was the priority throughout the Bible. I mean, we see this in Acts chapter 6 when the different needs arose as the church was growing and growing and growing. And, and, and the apostles said, listen, we need, to appoint, we need to appoint some deacons to help with this service here. Because we've got to give ourselves continually to the word of God in prayer. It was emphasized. It was stressed. I mean, we can see it even now. We came through Acts chapter 19. It led to the strength of the church at Ephesus, which became Paul's strongest. The word of God grew and multiplied. We minimized it. We come in not even ready for it. It's almost like it's a little social club. But you have to come prepared for the preaching. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, Lloyd-Jones excuse me. Many of, us, many of you, I'm sure, are aware who he is. He had an interesting quote that he brought up when studying church history. He said, the decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching was declined. Boy, we're seeing that right now. We're seeing even a substitute for the preaching of the Word of God for just some nice psychological sayings and motivational speaking. Listen, when you come here, you ought to be ready to learn, to absorb, to hear with obedient ears. Not coming looking to be entertained. Listen, the church service is not designed. Uh, um, it's 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 not designed for us to be the center. It's designed for God to be the center of what it's all about. We don't meet to come to come together to be entertained. We come to be taught, to learn of God, to grow, to to gain wisdom from His Word. So when you come, you come ready to learn. You come ready to repent, to allow God's Spirit to work on your heart. Say, Lord, if there's things I need to change, show me. Come ready to listen. Prepare your heart before the preaching. Understand, this is, this is what it comes down to. This is what it's about. Even as it's, it's getting ready to take place, Lord, please speak to my heart. The Lord, I mean, the devil in your own flesh will throw so many things to your mind during the preaching, prior to the preaching. Not only do you need to prepare for the preaching when you come, but you need to prepare for true worship. That deals with the submitting of yourselves. Do you know, worship in the Bible is nothing how it's described today. It's simply meant to fall down, bow down before. Before the Lord. A submitting. That's true worship. God, I am yours. Whatever you want. 
being willing, willing to allow God to be Lord of your life. Understanding He is what life is all about. None of this is music-based. Something has gone wrong when we need worship teams to direct worship. I forgot, when did Paul assemble his worship team? Prepare for a genuine worship. That means a willingness for you to bow down before God. To realize life is all about Him. Thirdly, what we also learn from what took place here in this text is you prepare for fellowship. We certainly need that. You come ready to fellowship with each other. We need that. It's not about just coming in and heading out. Talk. We need fellowship with each other. The Bible stresses that. We see that when, when, the, when the first century church was meeting, there was always times of fellowship. Just like here we see that they broke, broke uh, bread. I want to discuss what these fellowships look like in the first century. We have a really good idea just from the New Testament as well as other writings as to what would take place. Um, so I want, to, I want to discuss that. It would hold something, uh, terminology called a love feast. All right? That sounds odd to us today. Only thing that was was this. It was a potluck. It was a potluck. Very similar to what we do every single Sunday morning after the Sunday morning service. Not dissimilar to that at all. It was simply a potluck. People brought it together. They would bring food together. And they would spend time fellowshipping in that upper room. In their meeting place. Now we would see the upper room worked great for the churches. Because they were, they were gathering places. That's what they were designed for. When we think of meeting in a home today, we think around a living room where you can get eight people in. That's not the case here. Now... In, going into the second century, we'll actually say going into the third century, at the close of the second century is the first time we see in church history of churches, of buildings being erected for the sole purpose of the church meeting because styles were changing and the upper room was no longer working. So the local churches were now building their own facilities to meet in. So they would have the love feast, they would have, it would be a potluck, a time for fellowship afterwards. They would also hold communion. As I was studying this this week, what I found fascinating was this. Everything points to the fact that we don't have a set time the Bible would tell us. It's when we determine to have communion. But I've got to be honest, it was sort of convicting because from everything I can see, once a week they held communion. Matter of fact, Corinth messed it up, if you remember. Know what Corinth did? So the normal process was this. They would have a fellowship, then at a separate time, they isolated, they recognized the importance of communion, they would have communion. Guess what Corinth did? They mixed them. They mixed them. That led to problems. They didn't separate communion from the love feast. They also had people showing up not providing anything. Listen, if you, when you come, bring something. Now, that doesn't count singles and men and things like that. By, by no means. But those who can, you, you, you bring something. And so that wasn't happening at Corinth. And that was causing division. That was causing strife. Stay, enjoy the fellowship. We need it with each other. We're in this same battle together. We need that time. And I've, by the way, I will say that I think that's a strength of this church. I have never been a member of a church that had, well, maybe outside of Kunsan, but there was only like 
eight of us military guys, we had nothing else. We're without our families, and you were there all the time, like almost every day. But apart from that, the, the level of fellowship this church has is great. Get together during the week. And by the way, when the church met here, understand this. A lot of people, well, I'm, well actually, I'm, gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I will cover where it appears as if they met every day. I, I want to sort of sort of uh, give a clearer picture of how and when the church met. Um, and Well, let me just get to that now. L- look, at, look at verse, let's go back to Acts chapter 20. I want you to notice something here. Let me just jump to that now. Look at what it says here. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. Again, that's the idea of the communion. The first day of the week is Sunday. That is the Lord's Day. It is called the Lord's Day because it is the day of the resurrection. Now, when we see in the first century, there were a lot of meetings taking place during the week at different homes. And many of those would be going on at the same time. Those were fellowships, those were Bible studies, getting together where it was taught and preached that week. But at least on the first day of the week, the entire church assembled. They got together in an upper room at, uh, that was adequate enough to hold everyone. Sunday was the Lord's Day. That was, uh, that was guaranteed to be the, the day that the church would assemble. The primary day the church met, understand this, was Sunday, not Saturday. Saturday is the Sabbath day. There is no change in Scripture where anywhere, that's a Catholic doctrine, that somehow the Sabbath day changed from Saturday to Sunday. The Sabbath day is Saturday. Sunday is the Lord's Day. All right? We need to understand this because there are different isms and cults out there that like to say, no, we should be meeting on the Sabbath day. That we're in sin because we, you don't have church on a Saturday. That's a Sabbath day. And this doctrine has grown in popularity. If you're an SDA, they even actually teach and promote strongly that if you meet to worship on a Sunday, that is the mark of the beast. Nonsense. That developed from Ellen G. White with the dream and the vision she had with the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath day, being raised above the rest. Combining that with an assistant pastor from the First Baptist Church of New York City who got off doctrinally because his pastor tried to pick a date of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It never happened because no man knows the day or the hour, but the assistant pastor didn't hold to it and he created a doctrine called investigative judgment. Thus you had the combination with him getting together with Ellen G. White of, uh, LNG White of, of, of the, uh, the seven-day Saturday Adventist, the return, the, the, that church formed. That would have been in the mid-19th uh, century. But when did meeting on Sundays begin for the church? That's easy. Look at John chapter 20. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ himself started the church. We can tell that by uh, preposition usage in the Bible when he was talking about when the church would come. But then we see it is uh, the assembling of believers before even his death, burial, and resurrection. And so 
But I want you to notice this. Look at verse number 19. This is Sunday, the day of the resurrection, the Lord's day. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who himself started the meetings on Sunday. Then the same day, this is Sunday, at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And then he goes from there with the teaching. Let's jump down, look at verse number 26. This is the next appearance of the Lord when once again he would teach. And after eight days, what day are we on then? This is now a Sunday again. Once again, he meets with the church. We also see it in our text upon the first day of the week here. Look also at 1 Corinthians 16. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We can see it was the day that the churches were meeting. It continued from there. Verse 2, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. It was clear this was the expected day that the churches were meeting was Sunday. This is also in agreement with the writing of the early church fathers, the earliest writings we have, going back into the second century, that the days that the church was meeting was Sunday. Now, in Acts, you have a combination with those all those converted Jews that they were honoring the set prayer times that would take place on the Sabbath day. But, but again, those were converted Jews. This is, this is a, a transition time of those leading Judaism going under Christianity. The churches began meeting uh, on uh, uh, the first day of the week. And many times, those would start in the evening as we see because it, was a work, it wasn't an off day like it is today. Many times, those services would start at the evening. So the meeting on Sunday was not something that the Catholic Church started going to the 4th and 5th century. There's no truth in that. It was something that Christ himself established. But what about the Sabbath? Well, let's discuss that. What about the Sabbath? Look at Colossians chapter 2. Regardless of how hard the SDAs like to preach it in other groups, we are not under the Sabbath. And Sunday is not a Sabbath. Let no man therefore, verse 16, Colossians chapter 2, judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Let no one. Remember, there was multitude of Sabbaths. It wasn't just one. There were a total of 70 Sabbaths given in the Old Testament. The instruction in the New Testament is, let no man hold your regard. Well, why is that? How is it that that fourth command somehow is not? Well, let's talk about that. One, this command was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. That's why it was given. Look at Exodus chapter 31. It is the only one of the commands that this was said about. The only one. There, there was something uh, uh, different about it, and I want you to see that in the Bible. Let's look at Exodus 31.
Here's some instruction when the Sabbath was given. And by the way, we can see this also in Nehemiah. It started a lot of the teaching. Like you say, no, no, the Sabbath was before the law. It was not before the law. They tried to tie it into Genesis when the Lord rested on the seventh day, which he certainly did. But there was, no, there, was, there was nothing given at that time requiring that. That was not until here. Nehemiah chapter 9 gets into that. Look at verse 16 here of Exodus 31. Wherefore, but this isn't said about lying, coveting, murder, adultery. It's said about the Sabbath day only. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign. Between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It is this command that was specifically given as a sign to the nation of Israel when the Mosaic covenant was provided. We see that again and look in Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. We're going to put several things together so you get a clear picture. Here is the Lord speaking concerning the nation of Israel in verse 12. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctified them. It was a command given that was a sign of the covenant given to the nation of Israel. Christians, as we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 8, other places, were under a new covenant. Here are other proofs that we are not under the Sabbath of that fourth command. There is no, not one, New Testament command to keep the Sabbath. Not one. Think about this. The Jerusalem Council that we talked about in chapter 15 never ordered the Gentile churches to keep the Sabbath day. Paul, not one time in all his letters, cautioned Christians about breaking the Sabbath. He did just the opposite, like we see in Colossians chapter 2. He said, let no man hold your regard to the Sabbath. The New Testament explicitly teaches that Sabbath keeping was not a requirement. Romans 14, Galatians 4, Colossians chapter 2, as we read. Do you know what our rest is? Christ. Remember, that was a shadow. We're now into the substance since the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church met on Sunday. That's when the church, that's why we meet on Sunday. It is the Lord's Day, it is the day of the resurrection. So as we see Paul stressed not to forsake the assembling of yourselves. Whenever he could, he was having a meeting. Number two, forsake not your time alone with God. We certainly need time to assemble with each other. But as we see in our text, that Paul had determined to go afoot. In other words, by himself. He says, you all get on the boat. I'm going by myself. I'm going alone. I'm going alone. He didn't bring, one, he didn't bring Luke. Uh, he didn't, there, there's nobody going with him. On this, Not one of his companions is going to be traveling with him. He knew he needed some alone time. He needed that time with the Lord. Listen, 
Do not forsake your alone time with God. Don't forsake. This is something really you should set up at least a portion uh, in the mornings with the Lord. Many times those who are active in ministry can justify their busyness as a reason. They don't even have a decent alone time with God. The truth is, there are two sides to our Christian life that need to be in place and need to be balanced. It's not about one side or the other. It's about both. You need time with God and you need time for God. You need both to be present in your life. You have to balance those out. The one that gets attacked the most, which I certainly understand why, is your time, uh, is your time with God. That is the time in the Word of God. That is the time in prayer. You need that in your life. Your Christian life will continue to weaken and weaken. I don't care how busy you are. How many ministries you're involved in. Once, once you begin to weaken your alone time with God, once you begin to forsake that, your Christian life will begin to weaken. Even if you're active in ministry, know what you're going to struggle with? You're going to struggle with the different personalities. You're going to struggle. It's going to start becoming of the flesh. It's going to be easy for you to get burnt out. It's going to be easy for you and the ministers you're involved in to no longer see the people as souls, but for it to become more of a burden because you are weakening the source of your strength. Now, if you have a strong alone time with God, don't forget you do need time for God. To be active, to be serving. We need both. These, your time with God doesn't happen by accident. It's where you determine to make it happen. You say, I just don't have time for that. Yes, you do. Quit believing those excuses. You absolutely have time for it every single day. You can set that alarm clock 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes earlier, just fine. It'll work. You'll live. You'll make it. You get up, and you've got to see the need for it. That how much you need that alone time with God. To begin to feed on His Word, to be able to get on your knees and talk with them. Remember, it's, and let me say this. You certainly need to determine to be faithful to it. It starts there. But it's not about, as I like to put it this way, it's not about checking the box. It's about having actually your heart behind it for it to be effective. It's not about running through your reading and then, you know, study. So I, I checked my box for the day. You're getting nothing. You're wasting your time. Do you understand that? It's not about just going through a certain method to say, I did this, okay, my conscience is relieved, I opened the Bible, I got on my knees for a minute, I'm okay. You're missing what it's about. It's not about checking a box. It's about actually spending alone time with God. And sometimes you need different seasons of it, just like Paul. Paul, as you can see how determined he was, when he put those guys in the way, he said, listen guys, I'm going alone. And no doubt, you could just see Luke and the other men. Listen, let's go with you. No, no, I need this time. 
I need this time with the Lord. And he knew it was coming up, by the way. I, I could just see why Paul wanted extra time in prayer alone with God. Why he wanted this time to go afoot, to take this 20 to 25 mile hike, just to be alone. Because if he's with somebody, you know that guy's teaching, preaching, fellowshipping, discussing theology, God, all that he has in Christ. That's going to take place. It's Paul. He says, I'm going alone. He's getting ready to head to Jerusalem. They want him dead. This is going to be, he knows what he's, he knows what he's going to be going into. I mean, just think, he was just in Corinth. He was just in Corinth. The small Jewish population there already had a plot to kill him the moment he got on the boat. Now he's going to Jerusalem at Pentecost. Besides the care of the churches, he just left the new church in Troas. He had already saw the struggles of what was going on in Corinth. He knew the legalist heading into Galatia and all the churches there from his first missionary journey. He's going to take some time just to get a hold of God. Set up that time with God. Don't forsake your alone time with Him. Put it in place. And if, 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 if you say, you know what, yeah, that's something that, that I need to do, preacher. And, and your sentence ends there, you will not do it. You do what you determine to do. You have to say, listen, this is when I will do it. I will set my alarm at this time. This is when I will get up. Oh, but I just so, I'm just so hard to wake up in the morning. Oh. Do we not just, I'm, I'm saying, well, I know that term, I don't like using too much modern terminology, but it's just hit my mind right now. We do live in such a little snowflake generation. Don't put anything difficult on. It's going to be really tough to get up 20 minutes earlier. Really, come on. Do you realize that God became a man to save you? And you can't get up 20 minutes earlier to have alone time with God. Come on. What's wrong with us? Have that time with the Lord. Make it about Him. Just spend a little bit of time in His Word. And when you read it, like I said, don't do it to check a box. Take something from it. Take a thought, a verse. Meditate upon it. And when you go to pray, pray. Listen, I've been there where I am tired in the mornings where all of a sudden I'm praying. I'm like, man, 20 minutes has passed. I don't think I said anything. That's because I fell asleep. The first time I ever determined to pray all night long went well. Because there's no doubt I had to be asleep by 11. Next time I woke up, it was like 5 in the morning. I'm like, wow, that was really good. Much easier than I thought it would be. <laughs> when you go to pray, listen, let me give you some advice right there that I have found from, from my own experience. Do not just pray in your head. You pray out loud. Now, don't be the hypocrite in your house so everybody can hear you. Dear Lord! Oh, look, Daddy's praying again. Just make it about God. Just say it loud enough so you can hear it. All right? Just so you can hear it. That'll help you stay focused on your prayer time. Put some structure to it. Don't let it just be random. Put some structure to your prayer time. I model it. Right after Luke 11, when the Lord said, teach us how to pray. That's my outline for what I pray. 
the order of what I bring before the Lord in order based on Luke 11. I start off with praise and adoration. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Just telling him, remind him how great he is. It's a great way to start your prayer. Think of how powerful he is, how amazing he is. Praying for thy kingdom come and thy will to be done come out next. And I pray, Lord, for, for his return, for his kingdom, not only in his little return, but in combination with his will. One that I'd be surrendered to it. That I'd be yielded to it. Then getting in to ask forgiveness of my own sins and then on to the other requests that I'll break down from family and going on from there to church, etc. Put some structure to your alone time with God and determine to do it. See the need. And then you have that time before the Lord. You need both these. Time alone with God and time for God. Now as I finish, let me say this. I want to remind you of this. Maybe you're here right now. You're not even certain if you've ever actually been converted. You don't know if you're genuinely a Christian or not. You have no idea what's going to happen to you when you die. I want you to listen to me just for about two minutes right now. All right, listen. Listen to every word I have to say. You need this. See, the Bible tells us it's appointed in once to die, but after this, the judgment. One day you will die. You know that already. But what's coming is this. You will stand before the Creator who created everything, the entire universe. You will stand before Him in judgment. And you are guilty, just like I am. You see, when he judges you, the Bible teaches us that he's going to use his law to judge your life. And you've broken it just like I have. Every single one of us have. Now, that puts us in a really bad position because, listen to me, in Revelation 20 and 21, we have the clearest picture of judgment they've given to us. Every single person found guilty is cast into a lake of fire. That's a very real place. See, I don't believe that. Listen, it doesn't matter if you don't. Jump off flat top claiming you don't believe in gravity. You're going to be judged of God based on his law. You're guilty. Every single person found guilty is cast into a lake of fire. This is why God became a man. To save you from that judgment. You see, something has to take place when you stand before God in judgment. Listen to me. Don't miss this. It looks as if you have never sinned. That you are perfect. None of us are. But something has to happen to stand before a just God. He's just. That's not changing. He's holy and he's just. He's not abandoning who he is. He can't. For you to stand before a just God, something has to happen where you look perfect. That's why God became a man 2,000 years ago to make you look perfect. It's amazing what he did. God becomes a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He walks on this earth 30-some years as a man. And get this. He is the only one who's ever been on this earth who could go to judgment day as a man and the Father could say, you are innocent. I find no fault. You're perfect. He's the only one. It now gets even better. Get this. He lived that perfect life for you. In your place. You have heard the phrase that Jesus Christ died for you. That he died for your sins. We just don't understand what that means today. Listen, the Bible teaches us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says this. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
The pronouns there are God the Father and God the Son. God the Father made the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. See, when Christ died for you, what it means is this. Is God allowed for a transaction to happen that would satisfy justice. He placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ all of your sins as if he was the liar, as if he was the adulterer, as if he was the murderer, as if he was the vile person. And he suffered the judgment. That satisfied justice. He became sin for you. But it doesn't finish there. He then gives you his righteousness. He takes your life and how you lived, and he gives you his life and how he lived. It's like this. Let's say we have two pieces of paper here. Maybe I have another one in here. Yeah, I do. Good. Choose these two right here. Let's say Judgment Day talks about books are going to be open. One of those books will have your name on it. Boom, your name's up top here. Underneath your name is every single time you've broken God's law. It's all there. Now over here, let's say we have the Lord Jesus Christ up. Here's your name and your sin. Here's Jesus Christ. And underneath his name is absolutely no sin. It is nothing but righteousness. When I say that Christ died for you, what you can do is this. Is you can switch the names. Christ's name comes over here. Your name comes over here. Because now your sin is on him. And guess what? He was judged in your place. And if your name's over here, guess what it looks like? You're perfect. You say, okay, how do I switch those names? It's been the same way throughout since creation began. Repentance and faith. It is you realizing I'm going to be judged of God. I'm guilty. But I do believe that Jesus died for me. And that you decide to come to him by faith. It is a gift. Repenting of whatever else you've been trusted in. Seeing the direction your sin is taking you. And placing your faith solely in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. For by grace are you saved through faith. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you will place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save you, he will. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed.